On this week's Inside Marketing, I'll be talking to Vivian Chambers, the founder of Bricolage. We'll talk about lots of things. We'll talk about the importance of research, how the industry went too heavy on big data and real-time metrics. We'll talk about trend watching, and we'll talk about the importance of culture and how brands connect in culture. So join me for what's going to be an exciting episode as we talk about all things marketing to Vivian Chambers, founder of Bricolage, on this week's Inside Marketing. The Inside Marketing Podcast. Brought to you by Dentsu and Irish Times Media Solutions. So, as I said in the intro, I'm delighted to be joined by Viv Chambers, who's founder and MD of Bricolage. Welcome. Thanks for joining me this morning, Viv, and welcome. Dave, great. Thanks Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm, I'm delighted to have you. It's going to be, we chatted a little bit off mic a couple of times, and um, there's no doubt, I think the two of us like to talk, so this this could be epic, this could be a long one, but I'll, I'll try, I will do my best as the, the ultimate professional that I am to kind of keep us moving and try and um, limit the time, because the podcasts are getting, I was looking back on them a while ago, they, 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 I mean, they started off, some of them were about 25, 35 minutes, then they started to creep into the 40 minute zone, then they, and then they've unashamedly gone over the hour mark sometimes, so um, I think as I get more comfortable they get longer and that's the case people always say this when I'm when I'm pitching or doing presenting I do the rehearsals and a guy could be like 10 11 minutes and then they know I'm going to be 15 16 on the day because I just get comfortable but anyway I'll do my best so um thanks for joining me and we're going to talk about quite a few things today so um we'll kick off but before I get into kind of the meat of what we're going to talk about I just want to ask you a little bit about your company Bricolage now we know there is an abundance of agencies in, I, I I often get confused, I mean, who does what? We're all kind of bumping into one another and kind of special services. And we start off as one thing and then we kind of service um, creep into different things and, and we don't know who does what. Now, I looked up in the dictionary and the word bricolage means that it's made up or or comprised of lots of, of different diverse things. So I'm not sure you're going to have a tidy, um, neat and tidy out of the box answer for this question, but I'm going to try anyway. Um, what is your core business? What is your purpose? What do you do? If you're to define it like in the, the, the dreaded elevator pitch, what do you do? Why do you all get up and go into work in the morning? What is Bricolage about? Well, great. <laughs> easy question to start. Yeah, with. so we start with an easy one. It'll, it'll only go downhill from here. Look, look, I, you know, and, and again, it, there's a bit of physician heal thyself on this stuff in terms of a lot of companies, sometimes you, you noodle around a lot to work out your own proposition, but you're very good at doing it for others, right? But I think, look, Bricolage is funny because as a name, it actually comes from um, um, Sheila Keegan, who's a famous qualitative researcher uh, out of the UK. She's written a lot of books about, about qual, and she came and did a talk in Dublin many years ago, and it was all about what she called Bricolage. And it was about using diverse methods to uh, in research to unlock problems, and and she was very much focused on research should be more eclectic. We, you know, that we'd kind of gotten into a... A, a, a sort of a, a tunnel of standard qualitative, standard quant. The answer to every brief was always the same. We'll do six groups or we'll do a, mm. you know, a, a survey of, you know, a thousand people or whatever. And she was a, a real advocate for change in that respect. So I'm really struck by that message and bricolage being, a, in her terms, a, a, a sort of a way of looking at a, a problem with lots of different methods. And it, it, it turns out in qual, even though I, I, I started out and did a lot of focus groups, uh, there's around 20 methods of qualitative research out there, you know, and it's a real. It's really expanded and exploded with with um, uh, digital in the digital world. So I, I think she was she was onto something. So that that was that's that's part of it. I think bricolage itself comes from from it's a French word in the art world, and it's all about um, again using diverse methods and means. And I think that's where your definition comes from. 
And then another piece to me is um, um, I love the idea in anthropology and there's a, a, an anthropologist who used bricolage as a term to describe the bits and pieces that a tribe or a community, you know, define their culture as, you know, and, and that could be bits and pieces that are sacred rituals. It mm. can be full stuff. And if they were moving from one place to another, they would bring their, quote, bricolage with them. So we quite like that idea that a bricolage is basically what our culture is made up of. And, uh, you know, trying to understand that and, and break that down is kind of part of what we do. Right. Very good. So, well, yeah, that was that was more succinct than I was than I was expecting, because, um, you know, we chatted off. Here. It's one of those things that, you know, cobbler's bad shoes that you kind of quite often what you do for other people, you, you struggle to, to do for yourself as well. So um, now you touched on it there. And consumer research is obviously a big piece of what you do. Um, and it's going to come up a lot today because, you know, I have different views on it. Um, on different parts of it. I mean, I love consumer research generally. I think it's really, really important. And and I, and I also think that there's probably not enough of it done. Um, we don't do as much as we used to anymore. But at the same time, I think sometimes it can be just utterly meaningless in terms of this thing about um, sometimes, not all the time, obviously, but but sometimes research is done. You know, you have, it's not even a hypothesis. You say, I want, I want to go out and talk about this or I want to prove this point. Go get me some research that will prove this point. It becomes about validating a hypothesis that you have or or something that you, you've predetermined that you want to say. And a lot of, I know it's only in some cases, but a lot of the research, I think a lot of the research I've seen, um, and some of it can can be kind of cover your arse type of research. So, um, and that tends to be quite logical and, and maybe predetermined or formulaic, as you said there. Um, I didn't realise there was so many different types of research available, like over 20 types of um, of qual, so I mean, I, the ones I see are probably a poor reflection on on the capability of of research generally. But um, it tends to be quite logical, as I said. But but you, when we chatted off, Mike, and, and your point that I've read and some of the stuff you wrote is, you believe research can be creative. Um, so what do you mean by that? How can research be creative? Well, it, it, I, I always I, look, and I understand where you're coming from. Uh, the, God, cover your arse. Yeah, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of that goes on, but there's also a ton of research that 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 informs and kickstarts creativity. Actually, in you know, in design culture and in design thinking, research is is this, the the fundamental start point of 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 the creative process. And digging and immersing into a a context to understand it in depth is where the ideas come from. So, you know, we, we feel, I suppose, going back to your original question, we feel that we need to change this prevailing view that research is the place you go to for ideas to die or for blame to be diverted, you know. Um, uh, we want to play a more proactive role and and hopefully, you know, like, like I say, work with um, creative agencies and partners to unlock opportunity rather than the other way around. Um, I, I love your phrase, cover your arse, right? That's, 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 um, I'm going to keep that one. Um, it, it reminds me of, of um, a phrase that uh, the, the brilliant Rory Sutherland, you might know, you know, the guy who's uh, out of um, Ogilvy. Oh, I had him on the podcast, but I don't like to mention that. Oh, oh, oh yeah. <laughs> Congratulations. What a great guy. I, I'd say he, he just wind him up and, and let him go, right? Yeah, I couldn't get a word in, so he yeah, was great. Brilliant. brilliant, and he's got a great turn of phrase. And I love his phrase about uh, uh, cover your arse research, and he calls it meservation. <laughs> uh, you know, measurebation. And, and and I think what, what he was getting at, he was talking about work that he had seen with the digital camera community, and he had found that the, the, the people that really knew cameras were obsessed with the technical features, uh, they went on and on about all the different things that they did with anti-alias ratios and all sorts of mad stuff. And the reality was they took really bad photos, <laughs> you know. Uh, and and I, th- I think I think if if we over 
rationalize and overanalyze in the way that those those sort of digital camera obsessives do we miss we miss maybe what we're actually trying to look at and and we and we miss the experience right um and and i think i think this this meservation philosophy for a period took over business and what's lovely about what we're seeing with the design community with commercial creativity in general and i'm not necessarily talking about advertising here i think in general what you're seeing is an opening up. It's the opposite of meservation. It's really about the experience getting close in. Research is, and particularly qualitative research is, is dare I say, because, uh, you know, when you start a, a podcast saying, I'm going to talk to a research guy, um, I, I'm hoping all the... All the, all the all we've the, lost we've lost them all by now. They're tuned out. Yeah, you know, because, you know, I, I used to have that anxiety myself working with a research background that people think you're you're in an airport or intercepting people in in uh on the way to do something with a clipboard you know and yeah. uh, or i'm in a lab coat my mum used to think i was in a lab coat um you know i what we do is far more exciting than that and i think commercial creativity is doing extraordinarily exciting research and it kind of kind of makes me wince a bit when i hear this idea of yeah research is somehow blocking or getting in the way of the whole process yeah, we'll get into it in a bit more detail. I love that point about obsessive because I just sidebar, like, uh, you know, I think I hate when people become super obsessed about things. Now, one of the things that I, I particularly hate about um, research is focus groups. I'm going to get, I'm, I'm, go, I'm trying to get John Evans from System 1 on to kind of, so I can be beaten on that point, which I'm sure I will, because I probably have a very old fashioned and, and uninformed view of what it is. But like, I, I, the idea of, of kind of bringing people in to particularly focus groups to critique advertising campaigns and creativity, it it just drives me mad. I've seen so many campaigns, pitch idea, brilliant, you know, corner taken off here, a a chip taken off there. What goes out in the world is is utter garbage. And so how did this happen? And I don't know what point it goes from being a brilliant idea to utter rubbish, but it happens. It's a slow death and it it just happens through iterations of focus groups. So it drives me mad. And I, I don't know any other... I mean, I can't imagine the, the Beatles would never made Sgt. Peppers had they focus grouped that and, and asked consumers what they want. Just wouldn't have happened. And I don't know why we 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 value the opinion of, let's be honest, people who are paid to to go to focus groups for a living. You know, we value their opinion more than the creative agency. So um, I know I'm being facetious here because I do think cause, um, research is good. And, and But a lot of that I definitely think is cover your arse. So I think um, this idea, I just don't buy that, that a bunch of people with their ill-informed opinions should be refining, rejecting, um, you know, honing a creative idea. I just don't buy it. So, you know, don't have don't have an agency, don't buy a dog and bark yourself. Why have an agency and, and ask the, the wisdom of crowds? I just don't think you can crowdsource true creativity. So that's a long intro. Where do you, you make a point that agencies and um agencies have lost touch with research and also and vice versa. So, you know, what did you mean by that? Can you can you elaborate on that? Yeah, well, like, just to be clear, and I, I agree 100%, um, uh, uh, you know, at Bricolage, we, we don't do that kind of um, uh, box-ticking, end of the process, you know, test our ads stuff. You can't test ads in focus group. I actually think, in general, the most sophisticated qual practitioners in the world do not do that either. Uh, you know, it's funny, you know, um, I, I attend, I think it's it's important, and, and the onus is on us as a community to go to, for example, advertising and strategy and creative conferences and we go to design thinking conferences and so on but i bet you nobody in advertising or very few people in advertising would go to a research conference and see what's mm-hmm. actually going on and there's a new wave of, of thinking about this everybody knows we've all read um uh danny kahneman we all know about um system one system two mm-hmm. uh, you know we, we know that people in a focus group are not going to be a good 
judge or adjudicator of 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 a product. Or if you've seen um, that film Twelve Angry Men, they're not even they're not even consistent when it comes to judging uh, as a criminal done the done the crime. You know, it's 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 a mess, right? So I don't we don't go to the jury and say, hey, is this gonna is this gonna work or not? That's that's absurd. And I, I you know maybe that work still goes on in the town, um, but we don't do it. Um, you know, my point about losing touch with research. What I mean by that is in the past, when I worked in, in early doors, behavior and attitudes with an amazing company. And, 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 and I, I, you know, when I joined there, it was an apprenticeship um, in, in qual, in qualitative research in particular. I worked with amazing people like, you know, uh, Phelan O'Leary and Des Byrne and mm. uh, Graham Wilkinson and so on. Many, many people. And they all worked very closely with creative agencies and they were friends with creatives and friends with planners. And we were often brought in, I remember just as a cub researcher, very early in the process to help guide great creativity rather than test it. And that culture has maybe faded. I think we've, you know, research has, and I think you're right to call it out, does it, if research is maybe falling into the trap of being the film critic, you know? Yeah. Uh, rather than maybe working at the outset of the journey and helping, helping to unlock opportunity. Um, the other, the other thing I'd say about watching focus groups, you know, my career used to be about being on the road and doing focus groups week in, week out. And and, and really, I we, I love focus groups. I think they're an amazing tool, but I don't we don't do that much focus group work anymore. Mm. Um, there are so many other methods that we rely on, like qual is around 20 different methods. Many of them are digital and asynchronous. So it, what that means is you're not in the room with the people at the same time type thing. Um, and, 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 and that's, that's a big change. The other thing I'd say is though, you know, focus groups done badly are, are, are also a big problem here. You know, um, uh, there used to be a line, anyone who could fog a mirror could do a focus group. And I I couldn't, (laughs) I couldn't disagree more. Everybody's doing focus groups. Right. And it took me in BNA with that incredibly rigorous um, technique that they had, Uh, you know, you learned indirect modes of questioning you learned how to study body language we, uh, you know i studied psychology uh, paid for by bna when i was there uh, i did psychotherapy as well it took seven years i think before i did i felt that i really got it mm. seven years and you know like i say people have been thrown in and uh, creative has been thrown under the bus with focus group practitioners who just don't know what they're doing i think that's 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 a big issue but yeah. but look the quick answer is qual in, in particular, uh, should should appear at the start or early in the process. Mm. It, it's finding your aim, finding your direction, getting your aim right. And I think you can be a real ally of of creativity in that respect. Yeah. Um, you know, just to pick out an example, we used to work a lot with lots of agencies in town and being able. McConnell's in particular were real, um, really research friendly. They mm. did a lot of research themselves. John Fanning and <clears throat> Margaret Gilson and are excellent researchers in their own right, um, but they often commissioned us to do work at the at the outset of a journey to discover the insight that might crack the campaign. And they might have had early, uh, you know, s- s- concepts or early sketches that they wanted us to look at. And it was all about finding a way and finding what meaning was 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 there. It wasn't about testing. And I think it, that's that's a, a misdirection for for the yeah. certainly the creative research community. Yeah. We're not. We're not good at testing creativity, so we should we should stop we should doing stop it. Doing. I think you make a great point there as well. Like, I mean, it is a it is a craft. I mean, it's not as as you said, anyone could fog a mirror can can um you know contribute in a focus group or run them. It is a craft to be able to 
you know, spot who's dominating the group to be able to kind of navigate things. Not in the, I mean, I think that the misdirection is navigating the, the group to give you the answer that you want. Whereas in as a, in its truest form, to navigate the group to try and unlock insight and to be kind of neutral going into it is a real craft. And you know, I didn't, I never even thought of it. You know, seven years of training to, to kind of hone those skills and to, to craft your skills in that. And it's probably, that's just a lot of bad practitioners at the moment who are, who are literally just, you know, I just, I just need, I just need to get a bunch of people um, to, to tell me that this ad is top right hand corner, uh, top right box, please. Thank you. Um, Let's be fair. There's some amazing, um, qualitative practitioners in, in Dublin right now, but if, if they're being if they're being deployed in the wrong role, I, I think that's yeah. that's you know, I mean there's some amazing uh, qual researchers around. And typically the more experienced you are, the better you are. I mean focus groups unlock opportunities in, in lots of ways. Um you know Toyota did a did did a lot of work in back in the day to develop the Lexus in the US. And the foundation of that work was was 12 people who were luxury car buyers. That right. was their focus and they spent a long time with those people. They went deep rather yeah. than wide to create the Lexus. And and I think where you know the focus group and what it means, you know, it, it, is 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 changing. It, it, it's spending time with people to understand what they really really need and want at the start of a creative journey is actually fundamental. And I've done a lot of work as a you know, consulting planner and strategist with agencies uh, in, in, in Dublin. And what I'm what I'm what I'm often intrigued by is. We're not doing any research, or, or or research is not. There's no budget for the research, or mm. the client expect us to do any. I mean, real research, real meeting the people research, and and I'm sure that's changing. I'm sure agencies are, are cottoning on to that. But big tech, big tech companies are really hot on bringing qual in early in the journey. And mm. uh, you know, uh, they have in-house you know, companies with in-house innovation teams do it too. Uh, there is no debate uh, in the design community about the role of qual research at the start of. Yeah. creative process. The head of Qual and Google is a serious person. And it kind of surprises me that advertising agencies have this kind of, you know, research versus us mentality. Yeah. It just, it's a, I, I, I suspect a lot of agencies don't, but it, it's a funny, it's it's one of those stories that goes around that I kind of wince at. Yeah. No, I, yeah, I, I agree with you. And, you know, I, I sometimes, you know, my, my, my views are um, sometimes, well, ill-informed and designed to just get a rise out, out of people but like I do have a, I, I generally focus groups asking people about creative I'm not I, I'm, I'm ignorant about the nuances of how that's done but I generally have a bit of a problem with it because I just don't see it in other industries um, you made a point a minute ago which you know and so how unreliable an eyewitness testimony is which is kind of this thing about as you we're just not reliable in terms of recounting things that we've we've all seen the same thing and we're not good at recounting what is something that everybody has witnessed so an eyewitness testimony is hugely unreliable in a, in a court case and um, and I think that's some of this lies in, in in part of the problem I think with research is and how sometimes it's flawed is, is that a lot of it kind of was based or or kind of lies on the principle that we're perfectly rational human beings, that we we know what we want and we know what we want to see and we know what we buy. And also when you think about um, you know, oh it, uh, economists like Adam Smith who would kind of think that the market will, the, the invisible hand, consumers know what they want already. They know exactly how much they're going to pay for that. Um, and we know it, ironically, if research has taught us anything, is that we are absolutely not like that. We're not perfectly rational beings. Um, if only we were, it would be fantastic because advertising would be um, completely predictable and, and modelable. Um, but we also know that that is not the case. We know that, um, as Rory says, value is created on the factory floor, uh, in the mind as much as the factory floor. Um, and I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote some of the great American journalist and broadcaster Edward R. Murrow said, 
everyone's a prisoner of his own experience. And I love that line, that quote, because I think it's particularly true of creativity and innovation. So, I mean, there's loads of different kind of sayings and, and famous, more famous than that, which all point to the same thing, whether it's Steve Jobs or Henry Ford. And they all point to this idea that I didn't ask people what they want because people don't know what they want until they see it. So do you ascribe to that idea that people don't know what they want um, and, and we shouldn't bother asking them? So you tell me you don't know what you want. You know? I don't know what I want in loads of cases. I mean, I'm a bad example because genuinely I, I'm really easily influenced by advertising, but we don't know what we want all the time. I mean, we're not that rational. We don't, we, we, in terms of new, new product innovations, the, the, for, the Henry, I'm not sure whether Henry Ford actually said this or not, but he's, he's kind of, he's quoted as saying, if I asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. Um, so I don't know. It's a famous quote and it comes up a lot. Um, and, and you're reminding me of years ago, I did work with, with Vodafone. It was quite funny because people we were asking people, did you, you know, video calling, you know, this is a long time ago. I'm obviously giving away my age here a little bit. And uh, people didn't want video calling, you know, Vodafone were adamant. Oh, you, you will want video calling, you know, at some yeah. point. And what was great about that work is we knew that, you know, Vodafone were on a track that, you know, look, video calls are going to be in. Like people had loads of, barriers like oh you know i don't want people looking at me when i'm a call and geez i'm bored i won't be able to leave or whatever and uh, uh it was interesting we learned a lot about what the barriers were but we knew we were going to do video calling anyway um you know des burn um uh, the late great des burn of bna did a research project once on atm machines in ireland and the irish public said no we don't want atm machines why would i want to queue for my money in the rain people will know my business i might get robbed Loads of reasons, right? But what but that makes that that's you so you're a great that makes yeah. the point. And don't ask people what they want because they don't know what they want. No, and and Des used to always say that. Des said, um, "Don't ask them what they want. Ask them what they need." Right? right. And what he worked out is they really needed to get their money when the bank was closed. You know, and and in in his overall judgment, right? His overall judgment, his overall recommendation is, "Dear bank, do launch the ATM machine because the need outweighs what they think they want." And okay. It's really delicate balancing act. Um, but, you know, and going back to, you know, Steve Jobs used to quote that Henry Ford line all the time. And what makes me laugh is if you read about Apple at all, you read in depth, particularly on the product development side, they did tons of qual research with customers, with people that were uh, using mobile devices when they were developing the iPhone or MP3 mm. player developing the iPod because they wanted to work out what wasn't working and what were people's needs when listening to music. So I think it's important if you ask me what I want in certain domains, I will be able to answer perfectly. But if you say to me, do I want this thing or not this thing, that can, and particularly it's outside my field of experience, then I think you're, you're probably getting into more trouble there. So it's, it's important that we ask the right questions in the right context, you know? Mm -hmm. Like for example, um, famous case study, uh, I, I, I'm not sure was it McDonald's, but Clayton Christensen, um, the, the guy who wrote the book on innovation and disruption, uh, mentions a study they did on milkshakes for McDonald's, right? Mm. And rather than, you know, McDonald's problem was, God, milkshakes, right? Uh, we're not really moving the dial on milkshakes. What's the problem, right? And if you ask people, you know, if you developed a new milkshake and you ask people, do you want this new milkshake? You might have had, a, you know, one of these again. I don't know. I'm not ready for that. I'm not ready for a healthy milkshake. But what Clayton did was he actually went in and, and spent time observing people buying milkshakes, right, in McDonald's. And what they discovered was that, a lot of people were buying milkshakes in the morning, right? And and when they discovered that, they were there, whoa, what's going on here? And they used to follow the people and then go, hey, can we spend some time asking you about this? What's going on? And what they discovered was that people were commuting 
and drinking milkshakes in their in their cars on the way to work, right? And they were spending a couple of hours in the car in the US, right? And the milkshake was the perfect product, right? It would sit in their cup holder, they could slurp away and it wouldn't it wouldn't run down immediately. It would relieve the boredom. It tasted great. Um, you know, it 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 filled them up, right? Those are really great stuff. And 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 it was they were hiring it to do a job that McDonald's never knew existed for milkshakes. Mm. And in fact, there was one big problem with milkshakes was, yeah, I love them, right? But the big barrier is, God, you know, I feel a bit guilty. It's like having a dessert in the morning, mm. right? So that is an incredible insight, an incredible opportunity to unlock change and, and, and unlock innovation. And I think, I think going back to your point about people don't know what they want, yeah, they won't know. If I ask them, how do we, uh, how do, we do milkshakes differently? They wouldn't know. Yeah. But if I ask them, what do you want when you're getting a milkshake in the morning and you're commuting to work? Well, I, I, I'm pretty clear on what I want from that person, you know. Mm-hmm. Every, every, everything has its place. And I think we have to ask that what do you want question in the right context. You know, research should, and particularly qual research, should be about people's experiences and their behaviors, okay? Uh, uh, and if you're observing behaviors and you're asking people about their experiences, then they can tell you what they want. Mm. Ask speculative questions about what they might want in the future. Hey, do you want a MP3 player with one button in the middle when you've got an amazing MP3 player with loads of buttons? You know, people probably might have said to Steve, "No, I don't want the, I don't want the iPod. Thank you very much." Yeah. But thank, thankfully, history chose a different path. You know, the iPod was an amazing development, yeah, and, and they weren't, they weren't first to do it. Um, they just did it better than you know, and they and they changed that. The, the, they changed that. The, they even you know, even the, the their whole business is about it is about luxury and desirability in a, in a rational and kind of functional category so the it, yeah it's just well Steve Jobs was the, the ultimate kind of brilliant marketing person as well as kind of genius in terms of that thing so I'm not surprised that he kind of marketed himself with that kind of you know that that masquerading as yeah we don't test anything and throwing out those quotes when when really there was lots of deep testing in it but it is that idea about um, deep testing and talking to consumers about what they're trying to get under the skin of it because because uh, I think what's happened and we chatted about this before and you mentioned it earlier on um, one of the, the one of the criticisms of the ad community and I think it's more so um, the media agencies is you know, this obsession with new and and um, anything that has been before is old we don't want we don't want that anymore because we've got this new shiny thing over here this is better and actually when you think about data and what happened um, in terms of research and data we got we became obsessed with with big data, um, scalable data, and, and fast-moving metrics in real time. And to the point where, I mean, I remember we've, we have a brilliant um, panel-based tool called um, CCS, which is a consumer connection system. That's brilliant. It allows, to, it allows us to kind of get deep insight in terms of media usage and kind of really, really detailed media understanding and comms planning tool. But there was a point where it's nearly embarrassed kind of saying, clients go, oh, oh, it's panel-based, is it? It's not real-time. And No, no, it's panel-based because to unlock all that kind of granularity, has to, we have to, you know, go deep with people for a while. But the world went mad in terms of data and the ability to have real-time data and fast-moving metrics. And and then what happened, which is what usually is the case, because you, you can have you can have an abundance of data and, and zero insight. So all the data in the world quickly surfaced and bubbled up to you is absolutely no use if you don't have time to glean any insight from that. Because the hard part is not the... Um, the, the, the kind of publishing or the surfacing of data, the hard part is to, is to know what's going on. So all, all the what's happening without why it's happening leaves you in a kind of a knowledge vacuum, as it were. So um, 
like we, we did forget that behind every data point was a human, um, a, a human act or a human need or, or, you know, the human being behind the data. So, you know, you know the, the world kind of got a bit, went a bit cold on qual. What's your view on on the importance of qual and quant? And I kind of think I know where you're going to go with this, but what, 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 are, you, what are your thoughts on that big data, fast moving data, qual versus quant? Um. Yeah, well, well, yeah. Look, great question. I, I think you know. First of all, interesting enough, the problem of finding the, the signal and the noise, is you know, in terms of the noise of information and data, is very again exercising people's minds. And what we know is that people who, uh, particularly in the in the market research community, who do both qual and quant, are actually better at finding the signal and the noise. You know, it's a, it's a, it's it's an important aspect. The qualitative skills to read through the data, to ask the question of, I wonder what the real humans mean when they're saying this, is quite important. But I think you you and I are probably aligned. I, there, there was a real tyranny of numbers uh, and quant, sort of, uh, uh, particularly when it comes to creativity going on out there. And look, I'm not, a, I'm not an expert in big data. It does one job. But I think deep data, as, as you've been saying, deep data does another job. And a good analogy here, actually, again, to go back to the great uh, Rory Sutherland, right? He, he, I think he said once at a talk that the tube map, right? It's a brilliant tool. It's a great way of getting around on the underground, but it's a really terrible map of London, right? Mm. And and I and I think I think we've got to remember with quantum with data is that it leaves out as much as it contains, mm. right? There's a lot of gaps, right? It tells us a story. It's the tube map, but it ain't London, and it certainly is. I get out at Angel and I experience the vibe around around that area, that kind of immersive experience of what Angel is like. You know, uh, we need to we need to bring that into the conversation too. And and maybe the problem here is that yeah, this overweighting of the numbers is is, is has been a real a, a real problem. Like again, one one distinction I think that's important for us in Bricolage is that you know. Um, uh, and again, it comes from Danny Kahneman and all these all these people looking at at um, deep psychology and so on, thinking fast and slow. Is that you know we have two brains basically, right? We have a a system one brain which is kind of intuitive. It's it's uh, responds in the moment. It's feelings. It's that moment. It's it's when you it's when in my case you, you see someone and you go, oh my god, I'm going to marry that girl, right? And that and that is really hugely important to us as human beings, and. And we've got a, you know, and then we've another easier to access level called system two, which is quite analytical and rational. And, uh, you know, funny enough, it gets us wrong and lots, and like, you know, it's mm. post-rational is the phrase, you know. Um, and, and you know, the system one gut feeling level, we've got to access that more to, to, to understand what's going on. You know, you know, what's scary is, 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 is um, if you look at, the, if you look at the Brexit campaign mm. and you look at what happened there. Um, the the people on the on on the on on the leave side um, were really strong on gut feeling. On they used a lot of qualitative research. Um, you know, it, it's it's almost a bad case that proves the point mm. that we got out of the numbers and the data because the numbers and the data would have told them uh, people want to stay. What they actually found was that when they got on, you know, when they got to the ground level and asked people and got close to them and and, and understood their experience, they found opportunities to to change the narrative. Right. And that's a scary example, but but, but I think but I think it's very valid, you know. Yeah, I I, rem- I remember um I remember thinking about that that Brexit campaign, and I thought that was I, we're digressing a little bit, but I thought it was it was classic marketing. So I I had a view at the time which saying the whole narrative was Brexit 
should Britain exit? Um, and the, the the vote was yes. And I think if they had a rebranded it as Remain, should Britain remain? They probably would have got the yes because it was quite confusing the kind of the the you know the implications of of and when you're not sure, oh, okay, I'm going to vote yes, we should. Uh, yeah, I'm going to vote yeah. People didn't really understand, just voted yes. So if the campaign had been branded as Bremain, I think they would have still got a yes vote and they wouldn't be in the mess we're in. So I think it was it was, it was a, a case of of marketing winning um, that particular narrative as well. Um, well I, I think Dominic Cummings is an excellent qual researcher and strategist. And, and uh, I can't remember the name of the film, um, but there was a film about this. And, and I remember watching it intrigued because, again, you know, oh, he's a researcher. Uh, you could see him in pubs talking to people and 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 doing focus groups as a, a, a impromptu focus groups, and then doing the analysis and running it up. It's depicted in the film in a very yeah. vivid way. But the the key the key like we we did a bit of work that we're very proud of on the Yes Equality campaign, right? And again, we did the work early rather than late on. We weren't testing ads or messages, although some early concepts were were on the table. The problem we were addressing at the time, and it was informed, by the way, by some brilliant uh, quantitative research as well. We, uh, the quant research had identified that there was a, a large, so shall we call it a soft yes voter out there, mm. right? They knew there were soft yeses because they were saying yes to some questions in a, in, a, in a brilliantly designed piece of quant, actually. But no to lots of other questions that suggested, well, you know what, they're not actually not that liberal, these people. And it was a big large swathe of the population that were quite conservative and quite negative about lots of issues, but they were saying yes to yes equality, right? And there was a there was a question around the the the, the people working on that campaign at the time. Wait a minute, there's something wrong here. We're worried, right? Is this soft yes group going to switch on the yeah. last minute? Vote no, right? So we did some call uh, on that, uh, uh, which, like I say, we're very proud of. And the, the framing of the of the work was really important. So we got in with soft yeses. Definitely, we did interviews and we did focus groups and so on. But I think the key question really was um, that what we wanted to ask them about was the context of life in general within which this campaign would, would feature. They didn't even know that we were there to ask about this campaign. It was mm. a general discussion about Ireland nowadays. And, and what we found was, the big discovery was, the issue for soft yes people and probably a lot of no people was they were really worried about Ireland's direction and change. They were just, mm. you know, Ireland's changing too fast mm. was coming up a lot. These were really good, by the way, decent citizens. Yeah. They didn't want to bully, um, uh, you know, the LGBTQ community into submission. They didn't want to say, you know, bar them from getting married. One of the big jokes at the time was people used to joke a lot. Oh, Jesus. Well, you know, if they want to get married, you know, if they, you know, if they want to get if they want to uh, sign up to that, uh, they're welcome to it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they, used to, they used to joke about that a lot. And and I think what, the, what they were saying was, this vote is about change in Ireland. And I don't know how I feel about change yeah. in Ireland. But actually, I have no objection to anyone getting married. Jesus, if they want to, you know. If good, they want to be as unhappy as the rest of us, let them, let them. Yeah. yeah you know, and, and that was an amazing insight because when we came back to the campaign team with that, then the whole point of the campaign is, uh, it's not about change. It's about. It's actually about. Um, uh, it's about the valuable, the tradition of marriage in Ireland, and it's actually about. You know, it, a lot of what they did in the campaign is they pull back the very radical, LGBTQ elements. They, they, you know, it, it, this is this is controversial because because it's important that they have their voice. But from a strategic, cold, clear-eyed, Dominic Cummings kind of mentality, if you want to win, right, pull back on the extraordinary change. Yeah. And 
um, uh, uh, sort of message and the revolutionary messaging and the, you know, fists with rainbow flags on them type mm. iconography. Pull back from that and speak to the Irish public in a way where you're saying, you know what, we want the same things you do. Mm. You know, you know, uh, you wouldn't like if your equality was taken away from you. Yeah. You wouldn't like the ability to get married was taken away from you. And that was a very reasonable pitch. Mm. And it's, it, and, and I think, you know, uh, that, it's 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 look like I say, asking that question in the right way, getting close to people on the ground. It, it was really 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 important. Yeah, but and you're right because framing that slightly differently may have may have got a well probably wouldn't because in terms of that was one that was one of those signs where you're kind of proud you're really proud to be Irish. You can you can stand up. We made international headlines for the right reasons, and you could genuinely be proud to go. We're we're, we're a progressive um group of people that have a, a, a modern and inclusive view of the world. So it was one of those kind of great moments in 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 our cultural history, I think. Um what you a part of what you do, you do a lot of work for clients now and and um you covered it earlier on when you kind of nodded to a few bits and pieces that, that you do. So but part of what you do is you, you try and help clients and brands um navigate what are those fairly complex and different component parts of brand strategy. So thinking about those um, different parts of, of of brand strategy that you're helping clients with. I sometimes get confused on this again. Um, I get confused a lot. If you talk to me, you'll, you'll know I get confused a lot. But like, they're saying, are you helping clients understand the USP for a product or the emotional benefit or the purpose or or, or, or what role that product plays? Because in my mind, should a company not have that figured out already when they're kind of at NPD stage? Is that work that you do? Is that work that you're doing for clients um, or or not? I'm like, have I got that wrong? No, no, uh, uh, um, it's a good, a good question. I, I love the I love the um, the famous strategist Mike Tyson. I love that uh, line of uh, everyone has a strategy until they're punched in the face. And and I think, yeah, all the great companies we work with have have amazing strategies and, and brand plans and so on. But everything everything works uh, in theory until you until you have contact with the enemy, as they say. You know. Yeah. So 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 I so I think look. To answer your question, what do we what do we do? We have a role in all of those things. Particularly, I think we're we're early in a journey of change. Usually, that's where we come in. We're not really doing. We, we don't get commissioned to do research on simple questions about where are we now. You know, uh, we just came call this morning with with, with a famous um, a tea brand in Ireland, and they have a ton of excellent research that's about where are we now. The the question they bring to us is, and this is a very typical question, is where do we go next? And that's a fuzzy question, right? Uh, 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 so, so my sense is that um, uh, if you think of the component parts that you're asking about, I often, I often rely on the great, and, and you also, I know um, I'm a big fan of Mark Ritson and anyone who's listening to this podcast, if you haven't lost them already, they should definitely listen to the Mark Ritson inter- interview that you did. It was a fantastic um, yeah, in- interview. He, great, uh... he writes for Marketing Week. He's a very uh, amazing personality, right? But he, he's got a really good uh, uh, di- uh model and he talks about all marketing boils down to three things there's a diagnosis there's a right first off right mm-hmm. you diagnose the situation then you formulate a plan or a strategy to win and then after that you work out your tactics right and and and, and tactics he means tactics is the four p's right of marketing he means and he also means communications right the communication strategy is at the end of that journey yeah. right it's not the beginning Right, because not every answer to a problem is let's make an ad. Right, it's mm-hmm. it's it it often is a great answer, particularly where you want to achieve fame or or, or um, change people's minds or inspire them or whatever. But that's laid on, right? And I think his his model, you know, diagnosis, strategy, tactics, 
quite often a brief comes in, we we bring the client back to the diagnosis, yeah. right? We we look at what's really going on. Do we have are we asking the right questions here? Do we really understand the culture that that we're that that is the basis of the change that you want to achieve? Um, you know, uh, we, we've done a lot of work. Like I, I'm going to pick one client that that we have a great relationship with, which is Aldi. And over the years, we've done the development research on on the Kevin Kevin the Carrot campaign. And I think what's interesting about that is it didn't it didn't necessarily come to us as a uh, a creative brief. It certainly wasn't testing uh, uh, communications. Um, uh, McCann's had lots of McCann's uh, out of Manchester do the work, and they had lots of concepts. But um, and and we did bring that into a creative development research um, situation early on, mm-hmm. right? Which it's not laid on. We don't test Kevin the carrot, um, uh, and we had lots of options. By the way, Kevin wasn't the only option. But the key, the, the key actually to that project at the time wasn't uh, what's our Christmas ad campaign? Can we outdo John Lewis? Um, you know, what's the ad? What's the ad? What's the ad? The question was more around: Oh, um, people don't people love us? People think we're kind of a premium discount retail outlet, mm. which is an a lot of brands are paradoxical. They solve paradoxes. So people who shop in Aldi kind of feel proud that Aldi is high quality. Mm. It's got Irish ranges. You know, Aldi have done an amazing job on reassuring people yeah, that they you know have. when you buy our when you buy the gin, Boyle's gin, it's 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 an award-winning gin. It's fantastic, right? High quality, right? So there's the, but there was a disconnect at Christmas time. The shoppers just depart. They just don't shop in Aldi. Was was the problem, right? Mm. And when and and years ago, because we've been working with them a long time, I would I would be sitting with people, sitting with you know uh, people up and down the country, and there was this block about oh my god the Christmas table, and I'm looking at the mother-in-law, their father-in-law, whatever, and I'm, I'm you know where did the turkey come from, yeah. or where did the come from, and if I said Aldi, the the room would go silent, you know, <laughs> um, and they weren't selling a lot of turkeys, right? So this the Christmas blocker was the issue, and and what we what we what we what we were working on at that time was. What are the components of the experience that Aldi can deliver that will move the dial at Christmas time? Within which the advertising was was part of the. So to go back to Mark Ritson, it was the tactical element to that to that diagnosis and that strategy. Mm. And one of the things that we we found when we're looking at the at the comms ideas and 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 what's interesting with Kevin is Kevin's not just about I don't know getting kids go mad for the carrots at Christmas time and so on. It wasn't about kids and. People might be deceived and think Kevin's a bit of a novelty thing and it doesn't really matter. Uh, Kevin's actually about premiumness, right? Mm. Don't know if you, did you realize that? It's about... I didn't. I, I didn't realize that. I just thought it was a nice ad. And I like, I like Aldi anyway, so I, I'm, I'm, I don't need convincing of that one. I'm, I think it's a, it's a great, it's a great um, brand. It's a great, it, it doesn't get a lot of credit that it deserves. So um, I just like the ad. I didn't think about it too much. I know you're going to, you won't like to hear that. The beauty of advertising, the, the wonderful mind trick that advertising does is they get you to like you. And then they, obviously there's a sub, there's a sort of subconscious message, you know, the hidden persuaders, right, that they're trying to get in. Mm. And What's great about Kevin is, uh, and by the way, we looked at it over years, development work early on. Usually, in we're usually researching Christmas in January or February with Aldi. But um, uh, what, what happens is, 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 um, uh, uh, people love Kevin, right? Absolutely love it. It's it's up there in the pantheon of of the great sort of Christmas campaigns. And any suggestion that you might discontinue at Kevin or change Kevin comes 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 a cropper, right? But what's going on is when when you're asking people about the meaning of Aldi at Christmas time over the years what's changed is people now think of Aldi as as more premium the turkey sales have gone up the uh, product lines that didn't do as well like an alcohol have gone up 
and and the impression that Ke- what Kevin brings to that situation is an impression of wow, premiumness. Even the production values. This is like um, Pixar level. Mm. Uh, uh, this is really high standard. And the sense of um, of of you know almost like as as somebody said in a group once, it's like M and S but only cheaper. Mm. Once we heard that, we were there. Yes, Eureka. You know, you're, you know you're you're on a winner. Because now, you know what, I don't feel like I'm cutting corners at Christmas time when I shop at Aldi, mm. right? I'm stepping up a level. Mm. Uh, but also, I'm being smart and I'm being clever. And there's a lot packed into that, right? But again, imagine imagine a, a market research group where we have Kevin the Carrot ready to go. And we ask people, "What do you, do you want this ad with a carrot? It might have done badly. I mean, I'm, I'm sure the Cadbury's Gorilla, mm. uh, it was qual-researched. Would have done badly. It did, yeah. No, bombed. Totally bombed. I was working on it back in the time in the media agency. It was, it was yeah. They and and um, Phil Rumble decided. You know what? I, I think it's great. I'm going to go with it. So um, now they went back and I spoke to the agency involved in it on, on this podcast. They went back and they they researched it. It bombed. They went back and and kind of um, changed how they. They, they framed the research and then they got less negative and then they went with it. So, but yeah, you're right. It bombed, totally bombed in the first instance because said, you can imagine what they said. Nothing to do with the product, totally. And the idea that, yeah, no, but it, it is to do with the product because it's a, it's a, a, a pure moment of, you know, of joy and, and the, the expression of joy and, and that's kind of an adjacent to, to what chocolate is for people. So, but yeah, the research of it, back to the point about it, if they framed it a certain way and and had, had Phil Rumble been true to that, he would have said, I, I can't make that because I'll get, I'll get fired if it doesn't work. He probably would have got fired if it didn't work because the research said it wasn't going to. Brands are performances sometimes. People consume advertising, but they also consume the brand at the same time. And mm. what is the brand doing here is a really interesting subconscious layer. And what the brand is doing is they're pleasing us. They're, they're um, pleasing our kids. Mm. They're re- Christmas. They're having loads of fun. But also they're putting on a show that demonstrates incredible um, creative uh, investment and, and quality and so on. And that, right, that is what nails. And also, by the way, right, distinctive assets, going back to Byron Sharp and people like that. Nobody else has got a carrot, performing carrot at Christmas time, right? Mm. It's just so standout in a sea of very uh, deep emotional campaign work at Christmas time in Ireland. Yeah, true. This, uh, jumping around the place, having a laugh. And, and people really respond to that. It stands out. It does yeah. picks a lot of entertainment, you know, uh, uh, touch points. I think. And, and, and anyway, well, but, you're right because there's so many, there's so, so much of 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 so many ads. And Christmas is a great point. But they, they all look the same. They've the same kind of mood board. They follow the same structure and narrative. And all that happens is you can't attribute one brand to another. And so to be different, think John Hegarty makes that point. You've you got to be different, not different for the sake of being different necessarily, but you've got to find a different way in. Um, on the, like research, research, the word is quite old fashioned. It has a bit of stigma. You said at the top of this podcast, you know, we're talking about research and you people dropping off. But like the idea of the word is quite, it needs a bit of a rebrand where, where if you use, um, the, the, the phrase understanding culture, that's far nicer language. And I think culture is one of those words that the marketing community has, has kind of taken ownership or custody of recently. Um, a couple of things here. You talked about the, the kind of the, the pursuit of culture when we chatted off mic. And also you talked, you've, you've, you've mentioned before and I've read some stuff you, you sent me about we're entering an age of um, crowd culture and fandom. What do you mean by that? And, and what is this fandom formula that you've talked about? Oh, wow. Okay. Um, uh, so, so, well, first of all, culture, right? Just the first thing, because it is a it is a, an overused word, and I think it was one of the Goebbels or one of one of history's not very nice people 
said, whenever I hear the word culture, I reach for my gun and, and I kind of feel the same. It's, it's overused. It, is, it has become one of our, um, you know, sacred, sacred words in marketing, right? Um, I, 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 we, I think, look, Bricolage, we, we definitely position ourselves as students of culture, as it were. Um, and, we're, and we're very much um, following in the line of, of um, books like, you know, um, Doug Holt and Doug Cameron wrote a great book years ago called Culture Strategy. And anyone who wants to understand the role of culture and marketing should should read that book. Um, and I, I, uh, another, uh, you know, there's lots of people anyway, but I think I think fundamentally a culture is a, a flock of people. Right. It's mm. a crowd phenomenon uh, going in, going in a direction at any given time. And. We, we all belong to different cultures, right? Different crowds or flocks that, that we want to participate in. So, you know, the best definition of culture I can think of is it's what people copy and share and and build a community around or a crowd around. And copying and sharing actually is is, is really important, obviously, in the in the era of, of social and online mm-hmm. because the copying and sharing is now really transparent and really explicit. And we can we can study that. We can get involved with it. It's a it's a real revolution in research, actually, that's what's going on. Um, and I think if you define culture as what people copy and share and build a community around or a crowd around, well, look, for example, I'm a Munster rugby fan and I think I participate, even though I live in Dublin, I'm a very proud sort of Munster and Clareman, right? So so I participate in a very definite culture when I when I go down there. There are specific rituals, tribal codes, songs we sing, media I engage with, podcasts I listen to in advance on the way down, kit we wear, ways we're supposed to behave. And studying that is is really rich. And I think if you, if you define culture as things that people copy, share, and build a crowd or community around, then operation transformation is culture. Um, craft is culture. Um, uh, cycling and women joining cycling, interestingly, is a really dynamic culture. NFT and crypto, right? Their culture, right? And I think in an age of uncertainty and, and a post-religious society, culture is actually really important. And it's the way in which we find meaning, right? Mm. Um I, going back to your question about the fandom and so on, and, and so fandom's a, a kind of pretty extreme um, form of uh, cultural attention and followership, like I, like I mentioned Monster Rugby earlier. Um, and fandoms, the fandom formula is actually, um, uh, Zoe Scammon is a strategist, who uh, 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 brilliant strategist who published a, a deck of slides uh, on, on our Twitter feed last year, which I strongly recommend if you haven't seen it, go get it. It's called the fandom formula, I think. And and she very generously sets out what's coming in terms of the future of online and digital culture and NFTs and gaming and so on. And we, and we spoke to her and, and brought her in on a, a gaming culture study that we did. Um, and we we also shared that, by the way, inspired by Zoe. She, she definitely thinks we should be, um, you know, uh, <clears throat> growing the fund of knowledge in our in our in our in our community and in our industry and and and. So we just published this gaming study, and uh, again, check it out. It's on our it's on our LinkedIn and, and other social feeds. But anyway, the fandom formula is in that is on that in that piece of work, and she talks about, um, you know, uh, brands are going to be built in the future with the fans involved in a very uh, direct way, uh, and the fandom formula is community, right? Which mm-hmm. she means peer to peer networks, actually. So very much a digital communities multiplied by. Uh, autonomy, right? So a digital community that is your follower, right? Uh, your follower group. Uh, autonomy is them having an involvement and input to the story that you want to tell as a brand. And then equity, right? So multiply by equity. Equity is um, a, a sort of a co-ownership, a buy-in, 
they earn as part of their advocacy. There's a shared upside, right? This is the future of brand, in her opinion. And to be honest with you, it's the future of brand, in my opinion, too, and our opinion of Bricolash. Like a, a great example of this that's less abstract is Brewdog, right? Mm. I know people are having their travails at the moment, but when they were sailing uh, high in the world, they brought out their equity for punks. They brought the consumer, the fans, into the into the church, as it were. Mm. Um, they asked them, what do you want? Where do we go next? What matters to you? And that really informed and drove the brand. Community, autonomy, and, and literally equity. Uh, equity is what it's what it called. Any cutting-edge subculture brands out there at the moment, like Rafa in cycling or Vans uh, in board culture, are, are, are subscribing to the fandom formula. They're trying to cultivate fans. And, and this kind of goes against, there's this prevailing view, very, it's very, Byron Sharp's amazing, but the infrequent buyer cult mm. that, you know, don't care about your brand. Uh, this runs against that, right? Yeah. Uh, it's a different philosophy. It's bringing back loyal customers and fans closer to your brand, listening to them, uh, involving them in, in, in what you do and giving them a share of the prize. I think that's hugely mm. significant. And if you look at, and again, Discord and gaming communities and Discord as, as the social platform that will define our future, I think, more than any other. Um, Discord is all is built around fandom, things we're passionate about. Uh, Reddit's the same. These are incredibly influential um, uh, areas of our culture. And if you're not listening on Reddit or Discord at the moment, I suspect you're a little bit tone deaf. Right. Yeah, and that's, that's an interesting point about, you, you talk about, like, Byron Sharp, I get it. I get what he I, he did. He he performed a great service to marketing because I mean, and this came up before marketing was kind of there was there was a pride media agencies were priding themselves on on people not seeing their campaigns. This kind of micro targeting, um, kind of capability that we had, and and as as we do all the time, there was an overcorrection of that, and we went the opposite the opposite too far the opposite side just to kind of address that balance. But this idea of Fandom. I'm slightly segueing a little bit, but brand love. You know, love marks. Brand love was a thing. You know, and and the the holy grail of marketing was get people to love your brand, to you know, to to kind of care, to become advocates of your brand. And then, you know, that was probably it, 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 the counterbalance to that, which which then you know the opposite. The pendulum swung too far. Was no, it's complete nonsense. Nobody loves a brand. It's total garbage. And and usually, as is often the case, is it neither of those. Um, views are entirely true in and of themselves that, you know, there's there, there's exceptions to both of those things. And, and we don't live in, in a binary world. You don't have to, you can have people love your brand and target also the kind of infrequent users. But this idea that, um, you know, yeah, some brands are interchangeable, right? So if I go into McDonald's and I say, yeah, can I have a, a Pepsi Max? We don't have Pepsi Max, we just have a Coke Zero. Yeah, yeah, that's grand. doesn't matter. It's it's transient, it's ephemeral. I'll, I'll get over it. I'll get what I want the next time. But then there's other brands and categories where, I'm very, very, you know, if they don't have what I want, I'm just not buying something else. So um, where do you stand on that and this idea of brand love and, and in terms of the role of marketing that we can create love and, and it's quite stronger than fandom, but do you buy into that? Where, where What's your position on it? Uh, it's funny, we love our false gods in marketing, don't we? Um, and and one of the false gods that's that's getting called out is is this whole idea of love marks and the, and the book that was written around that. It's, it's, it's incredibly uh, unfashionable now uh, yeah. to talk about. Um, and uh, I had a, had a bit of a stand-up debate with Martin uh, Weigel of uh, Weed and Kennedy uh, a couple of years back at, at a conference because he was basically shouting the odds about no one effing loves your brand. And I'm like, God, that's not my experience. Have you have you talked to any consumers lately, or have you sat with them? And you have know, you seen uh, Apple as a company? Have you seen what they do that defies yeah, any logic? Well, 
Or, you know, um, you know, Moleskin is, is a brand I love. Uh, Google Docs, oh, geez, I couldn't live without mm. Google Docs. Obviously, the Irish Times, uh, you know, uh, is a brand I love. I get it delivered, you know. This idea that if, if the Irish Times went out of business, would I not be brokenhearted? I, I think I would, you know. Like so, so, uh, Sierra Nevada, White Hag, mm. I love the ends, right? Um, uh, you know, so, so I... I think it's an interesting, absolute, you know, uh, uh, binary there that that, mm. that I just I don't agree with. Um, maybe brands as love marks is a bit strong because the the only love marks in my life are my my family, my friends, my dog. Mm. Even yeah. you know, brands brands are probably better defined as relationships. And I have a relationship with a brand. And also, by the way, the kinds of relationship you have with a brand will appear in culture if uh, will be talked about, will be shared mm. if those experiences are fantastic or those experiences are terrible. I'm not going to name names. My bank is killing me right now. Yeah, and the please reason, don't, because we might handle them, so don't mention okay, okay. <laughs> Well, I think the relationship is broken. I feel trapped. You know, that's a bad relationship. And that's why I'm, uh, to, to, to strain the analogy, I'm flirting with Revolution and I'm having an affair with N26, you know? Yeah. And, and brands, brands are relationships um, and, and the strongest brands tell stories and share stories about you know, also our relationships with others. Brands are symbols of the kind of relationship I want to form with the world. They tell us a lot. And that sharing of, of that relationship is, is as old as, as you, know, the, you know, as time, right? And mm. we've used objects, clothing, brands as a form of social exchange value. And you know what's funny, actually, um, uh, Gary Vaynerchuk, you know, the, the, yeah, uh, yeah. the an investor guy, he's done an amazing uh, video recently about NFTs. And he was on one of the US talk shows or uh, one of those um, Bloomberg type, programs or whatever and uh he was talking about nfts and and people not getting it and he was going if you live in the digital realm and you exchange objects digital objects to showcase your status all of the time if you know those people and you live in that world nfts are no big deal you know get over it so look my friend my friend coleman has a new skoda and he makes me laugh because he loves it so much you know that's a passionate relationship uh, I don't want to come between him and his Skoda, right? And isn't it amazing, actually, what Skoda have done there, if you oh, think back phenomenal. To, yeah. to how they were perceived at one time. Skoda's shift in culture is, is remarkable, and, and congratulations to boys and girls for working on that, you know? Yeah. But I think Guinness during the lockdown, don't tell me people didn't, you know, desperately, passionately, reverently share their love of Guinness whenever they got one delivered or whatever, or yeah. when they got the club. I mean, come on. So I, I do think there is a love and there is a passion and there is an emotion in brand and we've maybe overshot the runway in the other direction. Yeah, I, I think so. And it's for certain categories. Like, for example, you know, it doesn't matter if you go in and whatever your water of choice is, you don't have it. Yeah, you'll probably get something else. doesn't matter. But like, I think brands, it, again, it's like, it's fashionable to to have a counter argument to something that's, that's you know, gained traction and to, to, to go against the grain and make headlines about it and to have a, a counter view to that is, is usually headline making. So um, I just want to talk about another thing, which again is a bit overused um, and it's the idea of trends, trend watching and that kind of thing. I do think as well, in a little bit like research can be used to support whatever it is we want to say, I, I find trends can be contradictory. Um, the one that I always um, kind of cite when I'm talking about this is that there's one trend that says we are we are kind of obsessed with healthiness, no low alcohol, you know, healthy, you know, paying a fortune for healthy protein bars and snacks and, and everything that goes into food. While 
it's only a couple of years ago that the World Health Organization said we're, we're on course to be the fattest nation, the most obese nation in Europe. So there are two trends that are factually correct. There are things that are happening on the surface um, culturally. Which one is a trend? Which one, They're both trends, so but they're both contradictory. So um, you guys are big into to trends, but not in kind of, kind of trend watching on a, on a horizon of kind of obviousness. Um, so I want to ask you a couple of questions here. And I won't keep you too much longer, but just a couple of questions here. What makes a trend? Wait, you see those two trends. Which one do you, do you kind of lean into? What what? How do you find um, an interesting trend? What you know? What? How does a fad become a trend? Um, how do you you know make sure that you're not just kind of chasing shadows and and kind of slight behavioral quirks or whatever that that never really take off or, or surface on mass and culture? What do you do? How, how do you how do you find them? I think, well, I, I think again, if you're if you're studying culture, uh, Dave, you know, trends are is another word for culture. I think culture is happening all around us, and people are flocking around. Uh, like you know, like I said, I mentioned NFTs. There's a flock going on around NFTs. There's probably a concern that there's a bubble there, but I think genuinely there probably is a bubble, right? And it may crash. But after the other side of the bubble, NFTs will remain and digital objects being shared to represent the status will, will remain. So culture is happening, right? And uh, culture happens either fast or slow, right? And, and the danger is that fast-moving culture, quick changes become amplified as this is the gospel, when what you need to do and be, be careful about it is to judge it in the context of, of sort of longer-term cultural changes and shifts. But I think I think ultimately we, we don't really... There is a trends industry, right? And 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 we all know we all know about that. We don't really give much credence to that in bricolage. Mm-hmm. We're always studying some group of people, some crowd who are doing something or going somewhere, and and they may be ahead of the curve, or they may have been doing it for a long time, but it's but it but it's interesting for for whatever reason. I, I think the other thing, that I, the other problem. Look, actually, just to go off point a bit, trends. We've, uh, the issue we have with trends culture is uh, is the trends industry is very. It's like a, a telescope that's pointed at one corner of the universe all of the time. Yeah. And typically that corner of the universe is very aspirational. Uh, it, it's quite elite, highly educated urban elites are typically going to live in the lifestyle that features in, in, in the trend report and so on. And it's very glamorous and very stylish and it's really, like, really cool. And the, the problem we have with that is 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 that it, the rest of the universe isn't, isn't involved and they have trends too, right? Yeah. So, Going back to the Brexit point, right? Um, I think what was interesting about that is, is that the urban elites were were the subject of the campaign and a lot of the writing. But um, uh, Dominic Cummings went and spoke to people on the ground, hmm. the people that feature in the trend reports, and he was influenced. I'm sure um, a lot of people in political strategy are influenced by a guy called David Goodhart, who wrote a book called The Road to Somewhere, and it, and his book was about. He's a sociologist, right? And he did a deep study of. People who live in towns and cities in the UK and and, and in the US, where they're really bound to the place, right? They, 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 they he called them the somewheres. They don't have an opportunity to move. Upward mobility is difficult. They they were born and bred there, right? And a bit like actually what I was talking about earlier with with the Yes Equality campaign, these people are kind of concerned about change, right? And they're very proud of where they come from. Funnily enough, even though they're kind of bound to the place, and upward mobility is an issue. And he contrasted the somewheres with the anywheres. The anywheres are people like ourselves who, who are highly educated, urban elites. You can transplant us to any country in the world. And as long as we can speak the language, we'll fit right in and we'll thrive. And we'll be able to apply our, our profession and our skills really well. And, and the urban elites seem to think 
everybody should live that way and every everything should be open open season. But the summers don't feel like that. They don't yeah. hold the same values. And trend reports don't talk to the summers very often. Yeah. And that's why Trump happens. That's why Brexit happened. That's why sometimes the political community here are scratching their heads about why are the public not getting us? Yeah. They're not getting us because we're following the wrong trends, right? So immigration, for example, is a real trend. But the somewheres and their feelings about that that trend isn't necessarily always about, for example, um, uh, the, the default is racism. Um, I'm sure that's there. But actually, uh, a huge part of what Goodhart found was it was all about change, mm. change town. And I don't get to influence or have any power anymore. And that's what Dominic Cummings tapped into. So mm. trends are not culture. Trend reports, I'm sure you've seen them. Yeah, yeah. No, we've I've seen them. And like, you know, they're, they're interesting reading. And I look at it and I go, I just don't relate to that. Yeah. But it's interesting, right? And I think that relatability, I guess, we, we're like I said, we, we're probably talking to someone on the ground. We have talked to what I call the somewheres. They're a, they're a majority demographic on this on this island. Mm. They live in towns that are typically bypassed by motorways. And when you talk to them, I, I, I would say straight off, they're pretty pissed off. Yeah. Right. And that's that's a trend if you want to if you want to bank that one. Um. So I think I think yeah, trends. Question mark, you know, yeah. culture. That's something else. But so so practically though, how do you go about kind of? So you mentioned. Well, you mentioned a tea company. So let's say I'm a coffee, I'm a coffee company now, and I say to you, "Oh yeah, you know, we're doing really well, but I want to know where's the market going." Like, how do you actually bricolage go about looking? Where are you looking to? Are you looking to? Are you looking to the Asia to, to surface trends up and things? Is there places you go to? Are you doing desk research? Are you jumping on planes? How do you know where to go? How do you know where to look for the trends? Well, I, 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 I definitely right. It starts with the question. Going back to the tea company, I guess, or 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 any company we work with, typically there's a brief, and what we try and find in the brief is who are the crowd or the culture that are defining the future of this brief, and and how how do we get to know them? And also, when you get to know them, then yeah, quite often, uh, definitely pre-COVID, and now it's coming back again. You get on a plane, you you immerse in the environment, you get really close to that culture to understand it in depth, and 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 like I said. Um, um, you know, I, I, if you if you look at the tea company, for example, there are communities living with tea in a more involved way, mm. uh, or in a more forward, progressive way, in a different way, and and it's very interesting to uh, uh, engage with them and find out what's going on. Mm. I mean, we we had a brief for Three Mobile a few years ago that that we're very proud of, and it was basically about you know the future of the company. I guess it was a strategic project, and and fundamentally the point what we what we what we wanted to do was work with with people that were living with connected technology rather than asking questions about how do you feel about your mobile network, right? There's a ton of research about how people feel about their mobile network. But in fact, uh, the mobile network themselves go, yeah, but we do so much more than that. We're being pigeonholed here. We, we, we offer so many amazing products and connectivity uh, uh, you know, uh, and so on. So, so, we, so the brief was really to, to understand connectedness and connected culture. Mm. And so what we did is we did get on a plane and we did go to, to to the US and other places and we engaged with people that were living in a very positive, connected world, you know, mm. and using connection technology to be fitter, to sleep better, to um, unlock all sorts of lifestyle changes and, uh, and, and achieve all sorts of goals and objectives. And that informed a brand strategy for three, which was called The Better Connected Life, an amazing ad campaign from Boys and Girls called uh, Make Account. Mm. It's about making the power of connected technology count in your life. Some beautiful emo ads. They've done some amazing work there. And 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 it also informed for us the um, 
the design, the redesign of the three stores from being mobile network stores to being connected culture or lifestyle stores. Mm. So if you go to the three store now, I don't know if you've seen this revamp, but they're stunning um, uh, uh, sort of, um, they're almost like, um, it's like an exhibition of connected lifestyle culture and how you can live differently through these amazing um, uh, mm. uh, product gadgets and so on. And, and that transformation came from a brief looking at culture. Mm. Tell me just a little bit about your business. So, like, what you've mentioned your background. So, like, how did you end up? Um, you know, and when did you set Bricolage up? And how big are you now? And how many people? And you know, who are you working with? What type of clients? And that type of thing. Uh, oh, 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 okay. So, so yeah, my background is um, I'm a very proud uh, Claremont. Wear the jersey all the time. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, landed in B&A seven years ago. Sorry, seven years ago, many years ago. Uh, God, a long time ago, and spent seven years there as an apprentice in a brilliant company, and that taught me uh, a lot about research. Uh, spent a lot of time then uh, um, consulting as an independent researcher and strategist, worked in client side with, um, you know, at gigs with O2 uh, at their height, um, amazing gig with um, Davin Nugent of, uh, uh, formerly of Mark Anthony and Copperberg, and 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 Copperberg, he he brought Copperberg from zero to the top of the. Um, packet cider category in the UK, uh, and I, I, I was very lucky to work alongside him, uh, as, you know, and consult alongside him in strategy and research all the way through that. Actually, he really understood the power qual, mm. and that that led to the development of um, White Claw with Mark Anthony where, when he transferred there. Um, and Bricolage was set up uh, around that time when he when he moved to Mark Anthony. We set up Bricolage uh, around 2015. Um, we're a small company, right? I, I tend to think of us as you know, actually, small companies funny. I was at a I was at a conference recently, and everyone was there. Uh, we're kind of from a leadership background, and small company for them. They're in London, and they're there. Oh yeah, we're small. Uh, we've got fifty people, and I was I was just there. Mm-hmm. Oh geez, because uh, we've got ten people uh, as kind of the core of the business, and then uh, we outsource a lot to yeah. uh, partners and, uh, and and freelancers that we bring in. It's kind of the I think it's called the Hollywood model. You know, a lot of Hollywood films are made with. Uh, guns for hire. So we've got some brilliant partners that we work with all over the it's world. A, it's a model that's increasingly going to be the way forward rather than having everything yourself as a kind of network of, of connected um, people that you can rely on rather than having it all available on tap in-house all the time. It's definitely a more agile model. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's the agile model. And, it, and it's good to to have autonomy um, before you build a business up and sell it and go off and sell around the south of France. It's good. Enjoy it before you sell out because probably an attractive company for lots of people in M&A. Um, are you working with clients directly or agencies or both? Or Yeah, yeah uh, we, we work, we do both. Um, uh, like I said, because we're at this sort of where do we go next kind of level, it, it's the relationship is quite strategic. I guess we can, we've got retained relationships with several mm. companies. Um, so we're, like, we're, we're part of the culture actually. It's, really important and we bring our client teams with us on the journey of research by the way it's not it's not a it's not a spectator sport anymore and and, and by the way some many many clients are brilliant creative and insightful people and they want to know and they want to be close to the action so so we've retained relationships um i'm a acting sort of strategy lead at 10th man right now on a consult basis and we do that uh, we do work with agencies directly mm. We do a lot of, like we view agencies, creative agencies as partners. I, I hate this idea that researchers are somehow the film critics, you know, uh, at the edge, yeah. uh, firing pot shots at great creative work. I think we should be involved at the outset, as I said earlier. And I think, you know, it's a bit like um, writers at the Oscars, right? Um, 
uh, we, we, nobody wants us on the red carpet. Nobody wants to interview us, right? Uh, uh, but like writers uh, at the Oscars, uh, you know, we do play a, a fundamental role, I yeah. think, in the process and unlocking, you know, directions of change for, for people. No, I like, but, the, I like that but, analogy. Yeah, but we need to be, you know, nobody wants to see us on the red carpet. So I'm fine with that. Mm. But you no, know, let's not, let's not, you know, this idea that research sits and judges creativity all the time uh, is, is you know, like Statler and Waldorf in the Muppets. Like, yeah. come on. Yeah, you know? <laughs> no, I, no, yeah, and I think you've kind of you've kind of um, changed my view to a degree because I probably just didn't appreciate that the you know great research when it's done properly, um, the value that it has. I just think too much of it is not done properly. It's done with the wrong intentions. Um, starting off, you're starting off in the wrong place. Um, are you doing work outside of Ireland, or is it predominantly with Irish clients? What's your What's your base at the moment? Yeah, we're doing we're doing a ton of work in uh, outside um, uh, because. To be honest with you, to go on discovery missions, Ireland, Ireland's great. Ireland's very open. Our, our young generation, Gen Z's coming through, are as tuned in as kids anywhere. But ultimately, um, uh, most of the discovery work you do has to be overseas. And, and and we do a lot of work with both clients overseas and we literally travel. So, um, And look, the, the COVID is interesting because it stopped the flights, but it brought more of um, uh, digital, yeah. sorry, digital digital methods into the frame. So we've, we've got to try and work out the balance because, you know, from a lifestyle perspective, it's quite nice to to use digital as a, as a surrogate for, for being there in person. But there is no, like being there in person, you discover a lot more. Yeah. Uh, and look, we've got we've got actually fieldwork trips planned for the USA and, mm. and beyond in April, for example. So it's amazing when quick travels come back into the frame, actually. Yeah, well, that's a real, um, you know, beating people, technology has played a blinder, let's be honest, but there are certain things that you just, you know, um, you just need to meet people. I, I, I think a lot of stuff, we do task-based things, fine, we can play through that, but kind, trying to do kind of more innovative stuff, even simple things like trying to do a pitch, it's really hard to have, do that on teams and sitting on your own. You kind of need a bouncing stuff off people you know they wander over to somebody's desk you see they're busy but you just go over and can I just have a minute you know whereas if, if you have to if they don't answer the phone and you have to put a team's meeting in someone's diary it's just life it just takes too long um i'm conscious i've taken you way too long but like as i said because you like to talk i like to talk i knew this is going to be the longest one we've done yet but i i didn't know how to make it any shorter so i and i i'm in fact i i'd happily stay here and chat to you for another hour um, I, I must meet you for a pint sometime I'd say we have a great chat about things so um, I'll stay in touch and I'd love to have you back on again at some point um, if you'd be happy to come on because I could talk to you all day you're a really interesting person to speak to and it's a great business by the way I've seen you um, you know I'd seen your logo on decks because we, we do a lot of work with different creative agencies for our clients and, and some of your work would have surfaced um, in different guises and, and you know it's the agencies you've seen so I was always interested in the brand didn't know a lot about it so it's, it's great to meet you and great to talk to you so Thanks so much for making the time and sorry for keeping it longer than we'd originally planned, but I partly blame you for that as well. Yeah, well, look, it, it's great to hear that you've encountered us in the wild and and, and we didn't, um, uh, you know, get your back up. So thanks for that, Dave, and thanks for giving giving me some airtime. Yeah, no problem. And oh, you, you'll come on again at some point, I presume, will you? Yeah? Yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean, cool. Like this is great, you know, so yeah, definitely. Well, listen, I wish you every success and yeah, check it out. So great work and keep keep it going. So um, all the best. Get your website built and I'll talk to you soon. Cheers, man. 
that's it, folks. That is all she wrote. We are out of time. So I'd like to say a big thank you to Viv Chambers for joining me today. And also, as always, thanks to our partners in the Irish Times Media Solutions. And thanks to Andrea and Sound and Kira in Marketing. If you like this episode, then listen back to some of our other brilliant episodes. You will find them by simply typing Irish Times Inside Marketing into your search engine of choice. Until next time, bye. The Inside Marketing Podcast. Brought to you by Dentsu and Irish Times Media Solutions.